0: Hello and welcome. My name is Dr. Raj Basord. I'm a consultant, doctor, psychiatrist, and I'm based in private practice in Harley Street, London, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Scott Samuelson, a philosopher who I've interviewed before for this podcast series, and he's written a new book called Seven Ways of Looking at Pointless Suffering. Um, So, Scott, um, is pointless suffering as opposed to suffering that has a point? (sighs) yeah,
1: I, I, I think that um, right now we're in a situation where I think my my distinction between pointless suffering and and other forms of suffering should should be fairly clear to people. But I mean, you know we have this expression no pain, no gain. And certainly, there are some forms of pain and suffering and 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 and, and, and difficulties that we go through in life. That we really see in the in the long run as having been all all the worth it you know um, uh, things that have paid off for us uh, and 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 that may have seemed hard at the time but were good in the end. But there's a, a lot of other kinds of things that I think that we experience and certainly at first we see as being pointless. That is to say, we pr- would prefer the world to be completely without this form of suffering, but that even after we've gone through them and even if we have found good in them in some way, shape or form, that there's still some chunk of it that is still lamentable, that is still bad, that we can still not really say, oh, it all paid off, it all had a point. Um, uh, it seems that it is just built into our experience, that that um, not only are we going to experience suffering as blowing our minds at first, but that even once we've done all the kind of spiritual and philosophical and religious work necessary that it, there's still an element that will blow our minds that just won't really add up. Um, uh, uh, you know, there are lots of examples of this. I mean, you know, you might think of like migraine headaches or something. Who among us would not wave a wand and eliminate migraine headaches from people's lives? Who would say about them, oh, they're all worth it? Um, uh, and I think right now what we're seeing with uh, the coronavirus epidemic, you know, that, that that most of us see this as as hitting people, and it's not just... Uh, 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 hurting and killing the evil people out there. Um, uh, It's not just, you know, teaching us some good lessons about how we need to be resilient, even though it might be doing that. Um, uh, That at some level, there's something deeply lamentable about it that just doesn't really add up to the way we humans look at the world.
0: So as a philosopher, the book draws together ancient and modern philosophy as a guide, it seems to me, to help us survive uh, this kind of difficulty so I think your book is particularly apposite at this present moment but I just want to stay with a notion uh, between point suffering that has a point and suffering that has no point so it seems to me what you're saying is let's say we have to starve ourselves to lose weight because our goal mm. is to lose weight and we suffer in the starvation process but there's a sense in which that suffering has a point and is therefore endurable because it seems to have meaning or exactly. we suffer We suffer at university to to get a great degree um, and therefore to get a job at Goldman Sachs, which is the whole point of going to university these days. Um, So we suffer... uh, in, in in working hard for the degree but because we get the degree at the end the suffering has a point however the death of a child the, mm-hmm. is meaningless and, and seems terrible as a result today with the pandemic from one day to the next people were leading their lives normally then the very next day they, they get told millions of people they're going to lose their jobs they can't go outside uh, people get the virus randomly whether they've obeyed the rules or not obeyed the rules and they die etc etc so this distinction seems seems very important and and, but quite difficult to get a feel for the difference between something that has a point and something that has no point
1: well or or let me use one more analogy here i mean you know i I, when i was uh younger i was an athlete i was a wrestler um, but people might think of whatever athletics they did but my wrestling coaches were really really hard on us and and put us through you know things that at the time sometimes we were just like why are they doing this are they just you know sadists torturing us but in the end, I looked back on that experience, and I see it all as they were actually trying to bring out the best in me by really putting me through those difficulties. Now, but imagine a, a wrestling coach or any other kind of coach who, beyond doing those kinds of things, uh, uh, decided to sexually abuse me or to, uh, you know, take a baseball bat and break my shins. Um, maybe I could learn some good lessons from those things, but those things don't really add up in the same way. They don't, uh, th- that, would, that would seem a kind of an excessive suffering that, that doesn't really have a point to
0: it. So it seems to me that one of the points you're making in your book is that suffering as a necessary part of life and, and Western affluent, comfortable cultures try to evade suffering. It, it thinks the point of life is, is to try to escape from suffering. So um, I wonder what your thoughts are about that. And and do you think those chickens are coming home to roost a little bit in the face of the suffering that's now being inflicted upon us by the pandemic?
1: Yeah, very much so. In some sense, we live in a a very lucky time in the big scope of history. I'm not talking about right now during the pandemic, but uh, uh, living in a kind of modern life. And and, and I, I feel like one very powerful way that we have of relating to this kind of suffering that I'm describing as pointless is to try to fix it. Um, we have used science and technology to uh, reduce and in some cases eliminate uh, things that cause pointless suffering. And I think most of us, and certainly me, are very grateful for that legacy um, of trying to fix these things. Certainly in light of the COVID epidemic right now, I'm very grateful that there are people trying to fix this um, overall. Uh, Then that leaves us with the question of what do we do with the stuff that we cannot fix? Um, And I think there will always be that remainder. Well, the other thing that I think in affluent societies we've had a tendency to do is just to try to forget about it, to try to turn away from it, to try not to pay attention to it. And again, forgetting about pointless suffering is at times necessary. Again, in this COVID epidemic, I think many of us find the cocktails in the evening an important thing to, to keep our sanity. Um, uh, uh, there are times in which just kind of checking out or not thinking about it is, is fine, but if that's all that we're trying to do is to fix it or forget about it, I think that we kind of lose the, the uh, another set of energies that's important for developing us as human beings. I call those the face-it energies. Um, so we can either fix it, forget about it, or face it. And I think by facing it, we actually um, uh, can improve human life in all sorts of ways. I mean, one thing is, very simple thing, You know, we're less likely to be caught off guard by these sorts of things, by just ignoring them. Um, But when we don't face uh, suffering head on, we often generate more suffering. Right now, I think some people are in denial about this epidemic and are therefore putting others at risk or are hoarding things or supporting policies that will further inflict suffering, Um, But also by not facing suffering, I think we just miss out on a meaningful life. We become kind of superficial. Um, And also I'm wondering if it's not the case that when our only approaches to pointless suffering are either to try to fix them technologically or through science and medicine or to forget about them that we suffer kind of grave anxieties and depressions when all of a sudden we are presented with suffering. Um, Perhaps our inability to just sometimes face and even suffer grief and fear leads us to compound our
0: negative emotions. So in a way, I think that one of the interesting things about your book, although it draws on philosophy, it seems to be hugely psychological, because really what you're saying, I think, and come back at me whether you agree or disagree, um is about resilience that resilience mm-hmm. in the face of pain and suffering requires us to confront suffering and have a philosophical a philosophy about suffering as opposed to constantly running away from it by running away from it or denying it we become weaker as people
1: yeah i think that that's i think that's well said and 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 even beyond the sense of resilience or maybe this goes along with the idea of resilience is this idea of growth that that it seems to me the the very essence of human growth is always in some sense about grappling with suffering and sometimes suffering that that really is overwhelming um I, I don't say this lightly. I mean it's, this can be a very hard set of lessons to try to learn and face, but it does seem to me at, at kind of at, at the core of who we are as human beings. I mean, imagine if you know if we really could wave a wand and just eliminate suffering or even just you know only have suffering where it, it, it all added up quite quickly to our human minds, it would be a world where we were sort of just stuck. it might it might be. You know, pleasant, but it, it, it would it would lack the kinds of human goods
0: that most of us deeply value. So I want to get into the, the details of the book in a second. I want to stay with where we are at the moment with the pandemic and people are increasingly turning to their political leaders or even their religious leaders for answers. And what you see with the politicians in particular is an attempt at a, to find someone to blame. Uh, we're going to blame mm-hmm. the, the people in the country where it came from or B, an attempt to to go quickly to a quick solution, Uh, try this drug, Uh, we're going to get a vaccine in a couple of weeks, Um, and the notion that the economy is going to bounce back. So people are looking Mm -hmm. for, for reassurance, they're looking a quick easy answer and they're looking for meaning they're looking for someone to blame so it, there's a sense in which there's an absence of the kind of philosophy you're espousing um, mm-hmm. of, of people providing in your view what would be the right kind of guidance so do you do you see that that people are getting the wrong answers when they when they go looking for answers from 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 our leaders at the moment
1: well, up to a point, I definitely agree with you that, 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 you know, this is where facing point, the pointlessness of the suffering is really important. I mean, to try to blame someone or to try to feel like, uh, you know, some people are immune or that, uh, it is, that just doesn't work. I mean, or it can, it can maybe provide some sort of temporary comfort to some people, but it, it's, it's mocked by the reality. Um, and it's not going to help us to deal with it effectively at all. Um, uh. I, like I said, I, I certainly think it's great that we are trying to figure out the best ways of dealing with it, minimizing it, and all of that. But I think that at the same time, if we um, are unable to learn some real lessons about who we are in light of this then, um, you, you know, we're, we're, we're going to be stuck. I mean, I, I think that this is, a, this is a moment where we can, we can actually, I think, uh, uh, learn important things. I mean, what for instance, just to take an example of what I mean, the, you know, one of the things in my, that my book deals with a lot is uh, some of the experience that I had while teaching in prison. And, um, you know, right now, I think a lot of people feel very isolated in in their homes and and are suffering because of that well one lesson that might be learned from that is to uh have a little bit more compassion for prisoners (laughs) that that uh all of a sudden we're we're opened up to a realization that many people live like this uh, um on a daily basis um well that can be a, a transformative thing um or the fact that you know uh um uh you know that that we are humbled by this virus i think is something that we can we can learn something from so i i think like i said if, if we're just if, if all we do is just try to fix it and forget about it and move on and hope that the economy uh, goes back and and everything's fine again i, I think we will have missed a, a an opportunity for the kind of growth that confronting pointless suffering can bring
0: okay so um Let's uh, get delve into the book, and the, the first philosopher I think you begin with is John Stuart Mill, and the, the subtext is the notion of let's let's do away with suffering. So tell us a little bit about who, who John Stuart Mill is and what his response to suffering is. Yeah, I mean, so the, the, this chapter is about the
1: philosophical theory of utilitarianism, um, and I see utilitarianism as being a kind of real essence of modern philosophical and moral thinking. Um, And the basic idea of utilitarianism is very straightforward and very commonsensical and goes quite a long ways, which is just, it just sort of says, well, pleasure is good and pain is bad. And those things that maximize pleasure are the best and those things that minimize pain are good too. Um, And so we should just try to bring about the greatest good for the greatest number all around and that we can do that by using uh, science and by using politics. Um, and like I said, in many ways, I think this is a kind of wonderful legacy of modernity itself. Um, uh, if we think about a kind of pre-modern moral approach to the to suffering, it, it's largely one of just accepting suffering as God's will. Well, the utilitarian view says, no, we don't have to accept smallpox as just built into the system. We don't have to accept COVID-19 as built into the system. They might be here, but, We should try to understand them and potentially eliminate them insofar as they're causing problems. Well, that's all wonderful and good. Uh, John Stuart Mill was raised with a kind of very strict utilitarian education. Um, uh, His father, James Mill, was a kind of really committed utilitarian devoted to the philosophy of Jeremy Bentham. Um, And so uh, uh, James Mill uh, raised John Stuart Mill, his son, to be this kind of utilitarian machine teaching him only the kinds of things that he thought were useful to improving human life. And those things did not include music or art. Um, he saw those as superfluous, but they did include useful subjects like economics and mathematics. Um, well, Mill, uh, after having gone through this education, which was in many ways a great success, was uh, oh. uh, an incredibly brilliant young man who was in a position of, of changing the world for the better, and he had a nervous breakdown. Um he felt as if he had if he were to accomplish everything that his father had had wanted him to do, that his life would still feel meaningless. And so Mill uh, uh, went through this crisis almost to the point of suicide, but he came out of it actually through two ways. One is, he encountered uh, romantic poetry. He became devoted to the poetry of people like William Wordsworth. And he found in poetry a sense of meaning again in life. He also fell in love um, uh, and found that that too helped him to understand uh, um, uh, what was meaningful in life altogether. But that led him to kind of modify his utilitarianism a bit. He said, look, we need to do more than just bring about the, the greatest pleasure and minimize uh, um, pain as much as we can. We need to find higher pleasures. We need to find pleasures that actually make us grow as human beings. and And what I argue is is that that, that I'm not so sure that that fits perfectly with utilitarianism, but as it, it does show to me a kind of promising uh, way forward with regard to modernity. Yes, we should be trying to minimize suffering and maximize well-being for people. But we need to kind of remember that, that, that our well-being involves taking on things that do involve uh, uh, pain and hardship, things like love, things like uh, um, uh,
0: uh, education. So I, I got a sense that the essence of this argument was that if you go down the utilitarian line and you remove all suffering from the world, you get a bit obsessed then with splitting ears about how much pleasure – and the quality of pleasure and yeah. uh, that th- you then have to do mathematics to add up to what the point of life is so you've got to work out whether a soliloquy from hamlet how many pleasure points <laughs> yeah. you're going give that as opposed to watching some pornography right. Um, right. and you, you show that that becomes ultimately empty um as, as a as an end point if life just becomes about pleasure um d- dissecting the fine details of which pleasures to go after um, ultimately becomes an empty experience. Is that, is that what you're trying to say?
1: Yes, that's right. And, and that, and that there's something that just doesn't quite do justice to our human experience by that way of thinking of just adding up pleasures uh, um, and pains and coming up with the best thing overall. I mean, you know, uh, uh, think about even, you know, people that you know and love, is it the case that you know and love only the people who, you know, maximize your pleasures? Uh, maybe, but, but sometimes the people who can drive you crazy are also people that, that mean a lot to you and that, that are important. Um, and that even some of the things that are difficult with them sometimes become part in, uh, uh, of, of the meaningfulness of the relationship. Or, I mean, to, to, to speak more grimly for a second, I mean, right now, people are having to make utilitarian calculations in hospitals, where they're having to decide who lives and who dies to maximize, um, uh, 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 life and to minimize death. Um, and maybe that's, maybe that is what needs to be done in those circumstances, this kind of triage mentality of, of, of bringing about the greatest good for the greatest number. But certainly we should also recognize that, 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 that involves, um, terrible sacrifices that, that are, are worthy of our kind of, grief it, 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 to, to just simply say, well, yeah, we, you know, this added up best, so therefore it was the greatest thing. Well, it, it may have been the best thing we could do, but it, 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 it still leaves something to be desired and something to be um, lamented.
0: So um, let's move on to Nietzsche. And and again, mm-hmm. the parat the, the subtitle here is we should embrace suffering. So so Nietzsche Nietzsche seems to be saying that you're a better human being if you're not afraid of suffering and you engage with suffering and you come out at the end being able to run marathons and do 100 push-ups mm-hmm. <laughs> and you become uh, a better man as a result. And this is partly maybe why the fascists got quite interested in him. Although there's some controversy, you're you're saying as to whether mm-hmm. Nietzsche uh, really was a philosophy that underpinned uh, fascism so tell us a bit about that
1: yeah I mean so yeah I, I think that what you said is right on the money I mean that Nietzsche is asking us well I mean he's really responding to people like Mill and sort of saying look you guys are your 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 philosophy is empty it doesn't have any life in it. That, that that we are natural beings and nature is is deeply shot through with suffering and with the inflicting of suffering, that it is a it is a struggle, it is it but and it is about the kind of growth that only can come through suffering. And so rather than say we should minimize suffering, Nietzsche goes almost in the other direction and says we should embrace suffering, both the, the undergoing of it as well as the inflicting of it. Um, Well, at first glance, at least, that can seem to many people a a, a very inhumane philosophy and one that might lead to the kind of worse abuses of of the Nazis. And in fact, the Nazis, there's a picture of of Hitler staring longingly into a statue of, of, of Nietzsche um uh so you know you can you can see that that has that sort of appeal there's almost a terrorist appeal to it of hey well let's let's be strong and powerful and that means you know having no problem with hurting others um i don't think nietzsche quite meant that just like how mill doesn't just mean utilitarianism in a in a simplistic way i don't think nietzsche means the idea that we should embrace suffering in a simplistic way either um uh i but i do think nietzsche does uh, 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 recommend that we just have to understand that if we're going to ever do great things in this life, it's going to involve a fair amount of suffering, both undergoing it and sometimes even inflicting it. The I, the goal for Nietzsche is to find the most uh, um, sort of artistic ways of doing that with your life um, uh, uh, to to live kind of like a, a, a
0: warrior or something like that. So um, for Nietzsche, the point of life is not happiness um and again correct me if i've got this wrong but in a way it's about greatness it's about transcending uh yourself and becoming um better and 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 he believes that greatness will be achieved through suffering So a, a wonderful Nietzschean moment That comes from some research looking at gold medal winners In, in the mm-hmm. Olympic Games mm-hmm. And one gold medal winner is being interviewed And obviously these are hyper competitive people mm-hmm. And he was discussing he, The fact that he'd heard that his main competitor For the title at the forthcoming Olympics had Was going to take a break on Christmas Day And mm-hmm. not train on Christmas Day And mm-hmm. this guy being interviewed Was delighted because he'd already resolved That he was going to carry on training Through mm-hmm. Christmas mm-hmm. Day so there's right. a Nietzschean sense of greatness is going to be achieved through suffering and being oblivious, and and of course there's a famous Nietzschean line that which does not kill me makes me stronger. I know that's been slightly mistranslated mm-hmm. in the in the no, war that is life. In the war that is life, I think is the preamble that which does not kill me makes me stronger. So it's also about a view that, that Nietzsche has a, that that life is a war. So so suffering's implicit,
1: anyway. right.
0: <laughs> Yeah, no,
1: that's right. And but th- this idea of that life is a war. I mean, like I really do think that Nietzsche was thinking of 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 like the ancient Greek warriors as as a kind of you know model in some ways, or the ancient Romans, and and he he saw in them a kind of uh, ethos of nobility itself. That that their idea of war wasn't just we're going to win at all costs, or we're going to be as brutal as can be. Their idea was to, to become great warriors. Well, that meant they wanted to fi- seek out great combatants and and that they had great respect for their enemies. Um, uh, they wanted to sort of you know play by the rules and be honest in what they were doing in the same way that a, a really great athlete doesn't just want to win at all costs. A really great athlete doesn't want to cheat. A really great athlete wants to, to, to win by playing at the rules and by taking on the best around them. And even in defeat, one shows respect to the victor and, and even the victor shows respect to the defeated. So, I mean, you know, and, and you, can, you can transfer that into other ways, like you say, athletics, but we can also think of like great artists or great um, uh, um, uh, uh, lawyers or, 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 or any of those things the people who, who want, who seek out challenges, who don't run away from the challenge as being a form of suffering, but who sort of embrace the challenge, even when it means their
0: defeat. So this takes us naturally in a sense, although, of course, Nietzsche has been misrepresented as being being um, a, a supporter of fascism when, when he was very much against anti-Semitism and so on. Um, and it was his sister who was the Nazi who who yeah, um, that's right. uh, uh, tried to sell uh, Nietzsche to the Nazis as an as a underpinning philosophy. So this takes us on nicely to Hannah Arendt. Um, I may not be pronouncing a name correctly, but um she she writes um and you devote a chapter to this on this famous phrase, the uh, banality of evil. She follows mm. the trial of Eichmann, that the Nazi was responsible. Um, there were many people responsible, but he was one of the key figures responsible for the the final solution, the Holocaust. Um, and when um Eichmann comes into the courtroom, um everyone expecting to see a monster, um, but he's a very ordinary guy, he's a bureaucrat. Um, mm-hmm. And Arendt is focusing on the the banality of evil, the, the bureaucracy of evil, and a key thing being the thoughtlessness. So, thoughtlessness as being something that underpins suffering. Um, again, what are, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, so
1: this the, my first three chapters about Mill, Nietzsche, and Hannah Arendt they 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 sort of are dealing with this this new status that human beings have. Where I mean to to sort of put a fine point on it is it 's almost like we, we, we take we, we try to play God, so to speak, so you know you can think of the utilitarian view as playing a, a good God, trying to build a world ourselves or rebuild the world that we 've inherited uh, uh, to bring about the greatest good um, Nietzsche of course famously you know says we need to be like you know the the ubermensch the the superhuman. Um, a, a kind of God who, you know, takes on all of this power and uses it for our our, our rising up. Um, uh, well, Hannah Rent comes in and uh, in a way says we have to take responsibility for the tremendous power that we have developed as human beings. But this is very, very difficult. She, of course, um, uh, uh, was a, a, a born a German Jew um, had to, uh, was eventually put in, in an internment camp, had to escape and flee from that to America, um, during World War II, um, and, you know, got the news about the Holocaust and was in a state of disbelief. And at first she, she knew the Nazis were, uh, um, uh, terrible, but, uh, the idea that they would just sort of, you know, in, in the midst of war, take some time out to, to murder you know, uh, millions of, of, of innocent people who pose no real threat to them. Um, and so this big question that many people raise is, how did this happen? Well, one way of thinking about it is to say, well, I guess the Nazis were all a bunch of devils who, 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 who you know, were just out to, to to inflict maximum harm on people for no real reason. But what Arendt came to see in Eichmann and, and, and others like him was that, while there probably were some real Uh, devilish type Nazis, Um, many of them were quite just normal banal people, Um, uh, people who just pretty much showed up and did their job, um, uh, who mindlessly uh, followed orders or whose goals were quite simple um, uh, and they were willing to find their greatness through following a Fuhrer. Um, uh, and so, so she coins that idea of the banality of evil. So one way of being evil is to be, uh, um, you could kind of think of it as a heroic evil of the terrorist who decides to inflict maximum damage. But another way is to just sort of show up and do your job, but your job happens to be, you know, loading Jews into, uh, a, a train car or, or, or ushering them towards the gas chamber, um, uh, when confronted you know, by uh, the evils that they help to inflict, uh, uh, the response might be, Hey, I just work here. Uh, I was just doing my job. Um, I didn't design this. Uh, you know, what was I supposed to do? Um, and so, but Hannah Ren's point resonates far beyond the Nazis. This isn't just about, um, uh, uh, you know, a, a few uh, uh, thoughtless people in Germany. We've, in our modern world, created all sorts of systems where we uh, um, uh, mindlessly just sort of go through what's been designed for us. Um, we become uh, kind of puppets of, of a larger system. And so we all are, in some sense, implicated in this. Um, we all can just, by going about our normal business, be part of things that are causing grave devastation. Um, and so we have to really think about what it means to rebuild the human condition such that we can... Uh, take responsibility again and lead meaningful lives, but also not be implicated
0: in in inflicting grave evil. And this seems very relevant for today, this notion that um, great evil can be visited upon us or great suffering, not by evil people, but by Mm -hmm. sheer thoughtlessness Mm -hmm. or people going through a bureaucracy. So people are making decisions today that are literally throwing millions of people out of work and are are going to cause massive suffering. And there's a bureaucracy in play. And there's a sense in which people who seem to be conducting these things are not looking entirely thoughtful about Mm -hmm. what they're doing. Um, and there's controversy about where the virus originated. You know, It might have leapt from some animal to a human being, the, 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 the notion there are certain markets in China that might be responsible. But whatever happened, the lack of pandemic planning in the West, there's a thoughtlessness that seems to run through the story of the pandemic. So it looks like it's come back here and, and now, that the, the banality of, of bureaucracy as being the causation of a lot of suffering.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And also, I mean, you know, that that it's, it's, I think, important for us to find ways where we can have a voice and where we're actually doing something, acting in some way, um, rather than just being uh, uh, purely passive in relationship to all this or being thoughtless. Um, I don't quite know how we're going to go about doing that, but I think that this is an opportunity for people to um, uh, uh, find new ways of connecting and acting in the political world. Rather than just simply being pawns of a bureaucratic system, which may or you know may be better
0: or worse managed. So now we come to the Book of Job, um, and this again seems very relevant to today because r- religious leaders um are 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 being turned to for for answers in the middle of the pandemic uh, famously in Albert Camus' book the plague mm-hmm. there's a there's a role role mm-hmm. played by the the priest in in mm-hmm. the town um visited by the plague where the priest gives an important sermon where he says you all had it coming uh, because right. you sinned against god this is god's answer and mm-hmm. in the book of job again it's particularly opposite because i think jo- i think god visits upon job um diseases after Mm -hmm. he's taken everything away from job um so job is a successful guy and um believes in God. And the question is, um, does he really believe in God? Or does he is he just running along because, you know, um life's turning out pretty good for him? So it makes sense in a way to believe in God. So God tests his faith, and again, he must correct me if I got the story wrong, and terrible things happen. Job suffers a series of really grievous losses. Um, and um the question then becomes. Um through the suffering that God inflicts upon job, what's his response going to be and and you believe there's an important answer there. Could you say something about that?
1: yeah, I mean so the and the job's sufferings are extreme among them. he loses all of his children, all of his children die, um loses all of his land his you know his, so to speak, his personal economy is devastated and then, as you say, the kind of the the, the final touch is this terrible disease, this painful disease that's inflicted on him a skin disease um uh uh the, job's friends come to him uh and at first they're just kind of quietly with him and they deserve some credit for that i think that that's there's a lesson there too that sometimes when people are suffering and in great pain just showing up and being present to them and, uh, uh is 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 a is is the best thing that can happen but eventually job starts asking the question why is this happening to me and his friends uh pipe up and his friends start saying some version of of what Camus' priest uh, uh, says, you know, well, you must have done something to deserve this, uh, Job. God God wouldn't just inflict this on you for no reason. Uh, And Job keeps insisting that, no, indeed, uh, he has done nothing wrong, or at least if he's done some things wrong, they don't add up to deserving uh, of, of his fate. I mean, he insists on the pointlessness at some sense of the suffering, and he asks God, why is this happening? Well, God eventually shows up and makes a really powerful speech of magnificent poetry to Job. And the way I interpret it is basically God says, this is above your pay grade, Job. You're just never going to understand this. This this is a deep mystery. Um, uh, uh, The the universe is a place of tremendous grandeur, of mind-blowing beauty, but also mind-blowing suffering. Um, uh, And after this kind of magnificent speech... Uh, job falls on his knees to worship God um, uh, and God furthermore says, well, job's friends are dead wrong. Um, job's friends who are trying to say, you know you deserved this um, uh, have, have have they're the ones who are uh, the, the ones who are wrong that job job by asking his questions was actually uh, doing the right thing. Job by insisting on the pointlessness of the suffering, was at least being honest. Um, and so I, I, I think that this represents a kind of permanent attitude for human beings in the face of great suffering. First of all, I think the only way people are going to find a real relationship to God is by being honest. I think it's just crap when people are, are saying, you know, this all has a point and, uh, uh, you know, it all adds up. I think ex- that mystery is part of any kind of real religion but I also think that, that there is, uh, you know, in, in the face of grave suffering, for many people, it does call forth a kind of awe for God. Um, I know that for some, uh, the great suffering in the world leads them away from God. They ask, how could this happen and turn away? But many like Job, in the face of this, they, uh, it, it opens them to a larger whole of which they're a very humble part of, um, and that they're willing to worship and hope that there is something better. Um, at the end of the book of Job, uh, God gives back Job everything and then some, including newer and better looking children, um, uh, which I find a bit insulting. Um, but I suppose that that can symbolize a kind of better fate that we might all hope for beyond this veil of tears.
0: But there's a sense in which the psychology and I, I think you believe that the, that the story bottles it at the end by God returning everything to Job, showing that in believe, if, by, by holding the faith. Uh, things will all come good at the end. Um, mm. you, you get an echo of that psychological need we have today with a, a, a certain mm-hmm. politician, not a million miles away from where you are, saying mm-hmm. uh, w- the economy is going to bounce back. I'm paraphrasing mm-hmm. now. Bounce back stronger yeah. than ever. The, this right. notion that we will endure suffering and then it will all be OK in the end and will be better than ever. And, and I right. think you're trying to argue the real confrontation with suffering and maybe the real story that that, that Job is meant to be about is, is that we have to confront it. Um and, and you're not really confronting it if you just walk around with the quasi-delusional belief that it's all gonna be okay in the end, we're gonna bounce back stronger than ever.
1: Exactly. That's it's it's more than quasi-delusional, <laughs> it's deeply delusional. But moreover, the 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 to me i mean you know there's something very insulting about this idea that 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 bouncing back is going to be just sort of getting the economy up and running again i mean certainly we need the economy up and running but but you know we should have some higher goals in mind um overall i mean uh, um and and moreover even even if we can sort of come out of this in you know with a better society and that's a powerful hope to have and one that i think is worth you know, uh, 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 taking seriously, um, uh, uh, we should be seeking for something higher than just, you know, more money and more jobs or whatever. Money and jobs might be important, but they're not the be all and end all. Um, We should be seeking out something more than that. And moreover, even if we do find all of that, there's still going to be a, a kind of sadness that we had to go through all this to find that, that there's... Um, uh, and, and not to not to register that I think is is insulting. I mean, I, I th- that's the way I put it too. With the one of the things I don't like about the end of the book of Job, there's to me something deeply insulting about you know having children that have died replaced by newer and better looking children. Um, I'm sure that that having new children can be a, a great relief to people who have lost their kids, but they're certainly not a replacement, and they certainly don't make up for the suffering that we had to go through. Um, uh, um, uh, so I think it's fine to hope for a better future but we should hope for a truly better future uh, not
0: a kind of just shallow uh, return to normal so now we come to the chapter that I think is most relevant to the current predicament we find ourselves in with the pandemic which is the the chapter about stoicism and I'm going to pronounce the name incorrectly Epictetus no that's Um, right Epictetus okay Wow, I was was afraid of that I could see that coming but anyway I managed (laughs) to get through that so um and this is about the notion that um, we have to embrace nature as it is. And this is very mm-hmm. close to where we are at the moment with nature yes. having things like viruses in it uh, that will come out of nowhere. And, and we have to we have to uh, endure nature as it is and, and to fight nature and, not, and, to, and, and to suffer and complain is not to really grasp uh, mm-hmm. life as it is or nature as it is. Again, yeah. um, any thoughts about that? Have I got that right as the as the uh, underpinning of, of stoicism? Yeah, so so the the kind of Stoic
1: formula for the good life is to live in accord with nature. Um, so we so you know if 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 Job is about bringing us to God, I think of Stoicism and and Epictetus' philosophy is about bringing us to nature. Um, sometimes, in fact, the Stoics talk about nature as God, um, but but they see that we're part of this tremendous whole that is nature, and that nature is functioning according to its own kind of logic. Um, and our job as human beings is to try to harmonize our logic with, uh, uh, that of nature as best as we can. Um, uh, uh, you know, that, that many times things that we see as bad are actually part of a much greater whole that is good. Um, our job for the Stoics isn't so much to complain about the way things are but about to improve ourselves in relationship to how things are, to see the world as a kind of great uh, um, uh, 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 you know, testing ground that we can um, uh, enhance ourselves in relationship
0: to. And Epictetus' own story um, is one of forbearance in the face of great adversity. So he was a guy who walked with a limp. Tell us a bit about his story. Yeah, so, I mean, we don't know a ton about him, but what little bit... We do know is is that he
1: was born into slavery. He was a, a, a Roman um, uh, uh, living about at the same time. In fact, well, flourishing about the same time as Nero and after. Um, uh, so he was born into slavery, uh, and slavery is a brutal institution. His master, as a young man, uh, amused himself by seeing if he could break a bone uh human bone uh with his bare hands and he called over his slave Epictetus and and took him by the leg and tried his best and indeed broke uh, Epictetus's leg. Um and Epictetus walked with a limp for the rest of his life as the bone didn't heal very well. Um he Epictetus eventually came to Rome um uh was, was a slave of Epaphroditus who was the uh secretary to Nero uh when Nero's reign fell apart and Nero was uh, um, uh, 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 ousted. Um, Epictetus eventually acquired his freedom and um, uh, uh, went on to become one of Rome's greatest philosophers. So he's he, he approaches these questions about what it means to be a human being and to lead a life in accord with nature in light of the fact that he had suffered, you know, gravely as a slave, um, had sl- suffered as the kind of lowest of the low on the social ladder um, but he believed that even in those things there was much to be learned and in fact in, in some ways he thought that being a slave could teach you more about what real freedom was than people who are in a position of, of of higher up on
0: the social ladder. Okay so um you devote a chapter to the the question about whether great art comes out of great suffering and you're a big Mm -hmm. fan of the blues in particular and the blues as a musical form seems uh, to rise out of the black experience and slavery in particular and you tell a lovely anecdote about how you are explaining to your kids what what the blues is And then they say, well, then, so slavery is a good thing because otherwise we wouldn't have had the blues. And you're you're running into slight trouble in trying to explain that's not quite the case. Um, And tell us a bit about that, but also tell us a bit about this fantastic anecdote about um, the Sicilian tyrant Ferlaris and and, and what he did and the connection between the two.
1: Right. So my, you know, my children grew up listening to the blues as I love it. And yeah, they like, like kids often do. They asked me a question that sort of brought me up short, which is I was describing the genesis of the blues to them. They said, oh, so is it worth it that there was slavery, you know, because there's now this great music that is, that has influenced so many people and brought so much beauty into the world. And, you know, of course you're like, no, and of course it doesn't make up for slavery, but it raises this powerful question that at the core of my book, which is, well, so we have endured this gray, pointless suffering in life, like slavery. Um, does that—that uh, um, uh, does the fact—that some good has come out of that? What do we make of that? How do we think of that? Um, I don't think at all uh, the blues makes up for slavery, um, or I don't think that all the good things that have come out of, say, uh, World War II make up for the Holocaust or 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 Auschwitz or 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 you know. Um, Uh, The dropping of the bomb. But um, and I say, you know, to think that way would to be to be a little like uh, um, the tyrant Phalaris, a Sicilian tyrant, ancient tyrant who used to amuse himself by putting people into a, a sculpture of a bull and roasting them alive. And as they were screaming and crying out inside the sculpture, their screams were transformed by a kind of, you know, interesting engineering feat into beautiful music. Um, uh, and um, I say, you know, there's something horrible about that way of thinking that that just because beautiful music emerges out of all this suffering, that the suffering is somehow worth it. But yet at the same time, I do think that the blues teaches us really, really important lessons. Um uh, uh, and so while the blues certainly doesn't make up for the suffering, in some sense, maybe the blues, uh, reconciles us to our humanity in ways that, 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 are important. Um, it teaches us to have compassion for those who are suffering, but also I think at its highest, the blues has a kind of understanding that even understands the fact that we inflict suffering. Um, and when we can understand both sides of that human equation, I think we're in a position to have a kind of more humane existence.
0: But it seems that the blues represents to you a triumph over suffering, but not denying the suffering. The blues exactly. really does confront suffering. The blues is all about the suffering, um, but at the same time, it represents a, a triumph over adversity. Right, and it leads us into this paradox that
1: is at the the core of my book that that um, uh, uh, you know that that when we really face suffering that we can find a kind of joy and a kind of meaning. Not one that, like I said, eliminates the suffering, but one that somehow lives with it. So, so the blues has that same paradox. It is it is the saddest of musics, but it is also the most joyful of musics. Um, it, 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 it is a music that feels somehow real and honest and true, um, uh, not by denying suffering, not by saying it all adds up, but by somehow you know
0: deeply facing it um and 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 making something great out of it so we're running out of time a, a little bit and thank you uh, once again for a wonderful interview but um one final anecdote i want to talk a bit about and then come back to the pandemic um towards the end of the book you mentioned and an, i think it's a neurosurgeon um who gets lung mm-hmm. cancer and he's yeah. a promising neurosurgeon and but he's gonna die and he's in his 30s and he says to his wife let's have a child before i die and she says well well isn't that gonna make your life even more painful having to say goodbye because you're going to die um, uh, to this child. And he's, I'm paraphrasing what you say, but he says, isn't that an even more wonderful thing? Um, That's right. like that. So could you say something about that? anecdote?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it is a beautiful book called when breath becomes air by Paul Kalanithi. I recommend to, to anyone who's listening. Um, uh, but yeah, he, this, this kind of brilliant neurosurgeon in his, in his thirties at the top of his game, uh, is diagnosed with cancer himself. And he reflects on that in this book. And he, and when he's diagnosed, he actually decides to do two things. One is to write the book, this kind of memoir, both about being a doctor as well as about suffering. Um, but then also he decides to have, have a, have a child. And, and that's right. When his wife says, well, isn't that going to make your death all the harder? Um, he says, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be wonderful if it did? Um, and it seems to me that, that 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 speaks to what it means to really face your death and face suffering is that it opens you up to the fact that sometimes you are willing to take those kinds of risks and even open yourself up to a certain kind of suffering, but but one that is life-enhancing. Um, I, I take it no one really has a child, or at least only a foolish person has a child, thinking that somehow you know it's 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 just going to be all pleasure and happiness. Um, and and even I think it's foolish to say that maybe the pains don't sometimes outweigh the pleasures with children, but the children represent a kind of joy uh, in, in life that it would be sad to live without. And I think all great endeavors are like that. Um, so to me, that that kind of confrontation with death is, is and and suffering um, opens us up to those kinds of adventures, um, the willingness to kind of go on the adventure of self. Um, uh, uh, you know, I, just last night I was having, a, a we call him a uh, a, you know, a cocktail over Zoom with a friend of mine who's the happiest person I know right now who also has stage four cancer and is, is scheduled to die. Um, but he's somehow come out of that and has a kind of a, a joy right
0: now, even in the midst of all of this, that, you know, perhaps there's something to be learned from that. But there's there's something wonderful about this anecdote about the neurosurgeon, um, about the notion. Therefore, I think you're trying to get over that suffering as a liberation, that because mm-hmm. he's not afraid to confront even more difficulty, he is somehow liberated in that. And and you're you're saying in our Western culture at the moment, our avoidance of constant avoidance of suffering, pursuit of comfort and pleasure traps us and imprisons us.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, that becomes a kind of theme throughout my book is that I'm dealing with actual prisoners who at times can find um, real uh, uh, joy, though in, in great difficult circumstances. But also people who live outside of prison and are kind of oblivious to it, who themselves are in a kind of prison, um, uh, I think you know, our kind of impulse to build these walls and separate uh, uh, um, you know, the suffering from the non-suffering does damage to both sides of that. And that perhaps a kind of real liberation does come when we are finally able to, to confront the suffering head on
0: so um we we haven't um talked um, in great detail about this but you do you did I'm not sure if you still do because you, you mentioned in the book something yeah. happened um you you voluntarily went and taught philosophy uh to inmates in a, in a local prison um, it was a voluntary act you didn't get paid to do it and um the book is full of of examples on what i like about this is this is philosophy as as, as practical stuff um because yeah. these, are, these are tough guys been through tough experiences not necessarily the most educated people in, in the world but but they grasp the philosophy they engage with it Sometimes better, in your opinion, than professional philosophers, mm. um, and and it, it it's a survival mechanism because it has real meaning. They have to confront mm-hmm. stuff through through the philosophy, um, and and but then something terrible happens in the book in in, in that you gave some money, um, uh, a small amount of money to one mm. inmate as as a as a gift, as a gesture, a positive mm-hmm. gesture. Mm-hmm. Uh, this breaks a rule. You're not allowed to mm-hmm. give money, and you get banned from this wonderful act of voluntary teaching philosophy to these inmates. So tell us a bit about that.
1: Yeah, it was I mean, it was it was maybe a bit foolish on my part, though. At the time, I did, I really I thought the exact opposite. But I had been in a long correspondence with one of my students um, who was serving a life sentence. And uh, I had just gotten a ton out of the correspondence. And in fact, I used some of it in my book and uh it was christmas and and i decided as a kind of gesture just to like send him a little bit of money so he could have a nice meal as a kind of thanks for all that he'd done for me um uh and but i had it was part of the rules that as a volunteer i'm not allowed to give money to to the inmate i didn't realize that at the time i probably should have um, but i did not uh in fact if anything i was congratulating myself on my generosity Um, but, uh, uh, I, I found out that that was against the rules and, and, and then I found out that I was banned from going to the prison as long as, um, my friend Simon was in the prison. Of course, he's in for a life sentence. Uh, at first I thought that that was just an absurd over, you know, punishment. I said, Oh, I'm, I understand if I have to be punished, maybe, you know, you can force me to take six months off or whatever. I'll come back. But, but they the, they didn't allow me to
0: do that, so so I've been locked out of prison. Yeah, um, but this um, this goes to the heart of another point I think, which is about um, the the, the, the over rigidity uh, by which rules are being followed, which causes suffering, mm-hmm. as opposed to the intelligent application of thinking things through uh, a little bit more intelligently, and and maybe um, people are defensive and they've got rules that that protect them and cover themselves uh, but they don't take any risks and they don't see through the rules to to humanity uh Mm -hmm. to to to, um human beings acting um um, in a human manner and this is a a major cause of of suffering in the world today and in a way this is happening with the pandemic uh, the enforcement of rules in a very rigid sense um people being ordered um, to keep moving and so on in, in 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 what becomes a cruel. There's a link between this rigidity over the following of the rules and the cruelty and not seeing through the rules to to human beings and humanity. Mm-hmm. Again, what are your yeah. thoughts?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I one of the things that I I, I worry about in the book is we have this tendency now to talk about suffering in, in terms of the metaphor of war that it's, we talk about, you know, the war on crime, the war on drugs, the war on terror. Um, uh, I suppose we could talk about the war on death, uh, itself and, and all of those things I worry have the potential to barbarize us. Obviously we need to confront those things. We need to confront crime and terrorism and death and the coronavirus um, uh, and I'm grateful for those who are willing to enforce rules and, and, and help us to do that. But I think if we get too much in this metaphor of a kind of total war and attempt to try to eliminate these things altogether, it, 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 it both kind of makes our lives less meaningful, but also kind of ironically, it ends up unleashing more suffering. Um, uh, our war on suffering oftentimes brings about a kind of greater harm overall.
0: So, Scott, thank you very much indeed for a wonderful interview. So, just to remind listeners, Scott Samuelson has been talking about his book, Seven Ways of Looking at Pointless Suffering, published by Chicago. Um, I'm just going to read the bio at the, at the back because I didn't do it at the beginning. Scott Samuelson has taught philosophy to a wide range of people, including at Kirkwood Community College and the Iowa Medical and Classification Center, otherwise known as Oakdale Prison, and is the author of The Deepest Human Life, Introduction to Philosophy for Everyone. And the current book, just to remind people again of the title, Seven Ways of Looking at Pointless Suffering. Scott, thank you very much indeed.
1: Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much.